Welcome to the Apex Podcast, guys. Today, we have Miss Tani Barnes, uh, the founder of End Extinction International. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. This is my first podcast interview. <laughs> oh, how exciting. Well, we're very thankful for you being here. Um, so, just right off the bat, how did you get into wildlife conservation? Um, I always knew I wanted to work with animals, and I originally wanted to be a vet. Um, but then come end of high school, I didn't get the marks because I found out what a social life was at 17. <laughs> so school school kind of took a back backseat to that. Um, so after traveling, I came back and I got into um, a few TAFE courses and then I did my search in captive animals because being a zookeeper sounded really fun. Um, and then I got hired as the education manager for a wildlife park and while I was doing that job, I got inspired to um, start EEI and Extinction International um, and, and really educate people and inspire people to help protect our endangered wildlife and, and ecosystems. Um, and through that job, I re- it was that I realised that it wasn't so much that people didn't care about endangered species and, and the fate of our planet. It was that people didn't know um they didn't realize what was going on you know social media was still very new then um so the the ability to communicate with mass amounts of people around the world at once was was quite limited um and instagram instagram was brand new so i thought oh we'll give that one a go (laughs) um and it kind of it kind of took off from there um and since then i've uh i've uh, finished a bachelor of zoology um and i'm in the middle of completing my cert for in wildlife veterinary nursing um, and i'm hoping to combine that with my conservation work so that i can travel and medically help um animals in sanctuaries and in the field yeah, as well it sounds like you got all bases covered um <laughs> trying, trying to, to. <laughs> um, where did you travel uh before you came back and studied Yeah, so um, I'd always had a dream of um, moving to England um, and traveling Europe. Uh, So I did that as soon as I finished high school. I moved over to England and I worked over there and then traveled Europe. Um, And I was over there for about 15 or so months. So, yeah, that was it was amazing. It was an incredible time in my life. Um, I did a lot of growing and I met amazing people, so amazing things. And, um, yeah, so coming home. At the time, I didn't cope very well. I only came home because I ran out of money. <laughs> um, but I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that obviously things have, have worked out the way they have because um, I, I ended up going to Nepal for three months in 2015 um, and doing a an internship with the Jane Goodall Institute over there um, studying human-wildlife conflict. And um, and I've got to be, you know, a guest speaker at some events and, um EEI has grown and, and reaches a lot of people and helps to educate people and um yeah so I'm yeah I'm happy with the way things turned out even if I didn't get to finish oh, it. That's fantastic. <laughs> where would you go if you go back hopefully after COVID time settles <laughs> post post of the post-COVID yeah. world um oh, look I I definitely want to do all of Eastern Europe because I didn't really do much I um I got to go to Eurovision in Serbia oh, wow. um which was ridiculously <laughs> it was ridiculous yeah it was really really fun <laughs> um but I didn't actually explore Serbia rather than that I was there purely for Eurovision <laughs> um and I I got to see a little bit of Poland um but I would love to see more of Poland um and um yeah, even even parts of Western Europe, like I never got to go to Spain. I ran out of money just before I was due mm. to go to Spain. Uh, I never got to do Portugal. Um, I didn't see a lot of France. Um, so I just feel like the whole of Europe, like I saw bits and pieces of everywhere, but I, I didn't really get to delve in. So I would love to just spend a couple of years, <laughs> ideally, just going from country to country and really exploring That sounds like it. a dream, doesn't it? Um, it does. Here in Australia, <laughs> we... Uh... We got such a, a cool connection with our wildlife. Um, it's very unique. You know, you, you talk to people around the world, from people from the United States, people from South Africa, and they think we're just balls to the wall awesome because we have giant <laughs> spiders in our houses sometimes and we just kind of shoo them out with a piece of paper. They think we're so hardcore. Um, <laughs> I have a you pet, got a pet spider. spider. There you go. <laughs> What's the European sort of connection with their wildlife? Um, is it just like, oh, honey, there's a there's a hedgehog in our 
garden? You know, <laughs> how do they sort of interact with their wildlife? To be honest with you, I really don't know. Um, I, I, when I was over there, I wasn't really doing a lot of wildlife-based stuff. I was, you know, I was, I was kind of, I was 18, 19 and, and living my, my travel dreams rather than my, uh, rather than my animal dreams. So um, to me, it was, a, it was a, a lot more about meeting people and um, exploring the culture and, and seeing, you know, the, his, the history mm. um, behind the, this, these amazing cities. Um, and especially because I did not pay attention in history in school, actually the, like being in the cities and learning their history while you're there was just mind-blowing. Um, I do have a very vivid memory of being in, no, I can't remember what country it was. Was it Switzerland? No. Someone's going to listen to this and be like, you're an idiot. Was this what country? I'm so what, sorry. Whatever country it was. country they I was got... in that time. <laughs> um, but no, it's famous for um, uh, having a, they call it the bear pits. Um, and it was literally this ancient hole, like this just this big hole in the ground in the middle of the city. And they just had these two giant bears living in this hole and people would just drop down oh, wow. to them. And it was awful yeah Yeah, it was awful and I remember thinking that for such a such a beautiful country and with so much rich history it was just such a disappointment um and I was just devastated and watching you know tourists berating these animals like they were toys and it was awful Um, and then yeah, yeah, no, the bears oh, were still in the Oh, I pit. thought this was way back when. Okay. No, no, no. So it was an ancient Jesus. thing, like an old thing. But the, when I went, so this was 2008. Um, wow, I feel old. It was 2008. Um, so, yeah, the bears were still in the pit and it was it was awful. And I remember thinking, like, what what do I do? What what can I do right now? And I just felt helpless. Like I literally wow. can't climb down and grab two gigantic bears. They'll probably eat me because they're probably starving. Um, Fortunately, since then, they have changed it from what I have read um, and they have created more of like a, I guess, a zoo-type enclosure for them. Um, So they've got a lot more space to move and and kind of act more naturally. Um, I don't know to what extent, though. Um, I I just remember hearing about it a few years ago that obviously it had improved. So... At this stage, any for them, any improvement was an improvement. Um, uh, any, yeah, but I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the state of it is now. I should, I should probably look into that actually. Well, yeah, I'm um, gonna have a quick Google after this. It sounds yeah, it was, it was pretty intense when I was there. Yeah, I was really disappointed. But um, other than that, the, yeah, I, um, I really don't have much memory of, no, of the. <laughs> They definitely have. They definitely have really different species. Like obviously, like deer and foxes, and they've got quite mm. a few beautiful birds and things like that. But um, I, I do think that the relationship uh, that Europeans have with their wildlife compared to Australians is very different. Um, I think Australia is just a lot more wild, uh, and that maybe that's because we haven't been European colonized for as long as Europe. So the decimation um, of habitat isn't as extensive yet um but obviously you know i think one of the biggest draw cards for australia as well is our incredible unique variety of wildlife so it's because it's such a huge draw card there's obviously a huge focus on protecting that as well um and you know we're, we're so lucky to live here in a in a country where you step out your front door and like I mean, yeah, the animals may be tiny, but there's so many of them. Like I've got so many spiders living out the front of my <laughs> in my garden, little orb weavers, and every day I walk out and the web's three times bigger and the spider has had a big meal and grown. And, um, you know, there's just so much bird life here. We're also known as the land of parrots and things. And, and then obviously there's the mammals that we're famous for. So I think we're just very lucky to live in a country that's just so insanely biodiverse. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons it's so important that we fight to protect it. Yeah, absolutely. So... What was the driving sort of factor that made you want to start up End Extinction International? Um, So when I was working at the wildlife park, my job every day was to educate people on the animals. Um, So usually I would do classes for school groups or tour groups um, and English as second language groups. Which wildlife park was it? It was Featherdale Wildlife Park in Western Sydney. Okay. Um, and so I was there from 2012 to 2015. Um, and yeah, so every day I got to take animals down to the education center and groups would come through and I would 
teach them about the animals. And one of my favourite parts about it actually was helping people overcome their misunderstandings and their fears of snakes. Uh, and if I could get one terrified person to just put one finger on that snake, I knew that I'd made a difference because almost every single time they did it, they would want to go back and pat it again. And it just, to me, it just helped them release that innate fear and that 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 misunderstanding um, enough that they could appreciate them as something more than just something terrifying with no legs. Mm. Um, and then uh, when I would teach them about koalas, they, you know, I tell them that they were endangered and people were horrified because obviously koalas are one of the biggest draw cards in terms of wildlife for tourists. And they were horrified to hear that their favorite cuddly little teddy bears, which are not so cuddly teddy bears, by the way, <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever handled a koala, you know they're not cuddly little teddy bears. Um, so yeah, for them to find out that this animal that they just adore to be endangered was just, it was really shocking for them. And that was what inspired me to start AEI um, because I realised that the information just wasn't out there. And obviously since then, social media has grown enormously. We've now got things like podcasts as well. And so the information is just, it's so much more out there. And I think conservation is definitely much more mainstream, which is fantastic. And mm. there's just so many different conservation organisations and people out there that it, it's hard to to, you know, I guess, scroll through your Instagram without finding something about environmental conservation, um, which is great. So, yeah, I'm really happy to to be a part of that. Extinction is such a uphill battle, especially when we take into consideration the, um, oh, I can't think of the word. Like we take into other issues like deforestation, things that inadvertently have led to species suffering. Mm not us directly going out and hunting them just there it's a byproduct of of some processes um so in light of that how, how do you stay positive with all this mess that humans have caused whether it's overfishing whether it's yeah def deforestation or ocean acidification how do you stay positive when there's you know we're kind of ganged up on yeah, it's a really good question and in complete honesty, a lot of the time I don't. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that people need to be more, I think a lot of conservationists are becoming more open and honest about is that you're right, this is not only an uphill battle in terms of we've got political fights on our hands, we've got, um, you know, multi-billion dollar corporation fights on our hands, we've got individual fights on our hands, community fights on our hands, but it's, yeah, the emotional toll that conservation takes is is a lot. Um, and I have often sat back and cried and thought, like, I'm not even making a difference. Um, and anyone in conservation will tell you that they have had um, imposter syndrome <laughs> many, many times. Um, I definitely get imposter syndrome all of the time because I don't feel like I'm doing anything compared to some of the people out there. And, um, and that's, that's hard. Imposter syndrome alone is hard feeling like, you know, you don't belong in this industry and you're not actually doing anything. And then, you know, you get asked to do a podcast and you're like, but why? <laughs> <laughs> there are so many other people out there doing so much more. Um, so that alone is hard, but then, I guess the downside to social media is not only the cyberbullying, but also the the footage that comes out, the you know the the information that's exposed. It's good that it's there because it means that we can take action because we have evidence. But it's also if that's what you're seeing day after day after day, it just chips away at that positivity yeah. um, and makes it really really hard. So I guess for me, I try to. When I do get into those stages, I try to take a step back just even for a couple of days and do something non-conservation focused because I've got to take care of myself first. Otherwise, I'm useless to the field, to, to the industry. Um, and then I can come back fresh. And I think having a really supportive network in conservation is really important as well. Um, so I've made some incredible friends through, through conservation and I know that they go through the same thing. And so I know that we can go to each other, we can talk about it, we can brainstorm ideas for how we can fix things or how we can try and solve things. Or mm. um, And that, that to me has definitely 
helped um, to keep me positive. And then, of course, there's the little wins. So seeing, you know, a 12-year-old kid start their own plastic-free campaign or um, seeing a, a community, um, you know, do a, a clean-up day and, and planting native plants and little things like that that may not mean a lot globally but they mean so much on an individual and a community level. And those are those, those little steps are what's going to make the big difference in the end. Those kinds of things keep me positive because it means that even when I'm having a bad day, there's still people out there fighting. So I can take a break and come back. Mm. Um, do you think the Australian government's doing enough? Like ScoMo is going to head to, what is it, Glasgow for some climate change summit? Mm, we yeah, know no. That our targets <laughs> aren't being hit. He he'll say and lie that we're we're heading, you know, in a canter towards our targets. But anyone that's actually looked at the the papers says that we're very very far off. Um, so that we're not doing enough. The Aussie government. What can we do to, or what could they do? Sorry, because I'm not in it. <laughs> What could they do to sort of better themselves? Yeah, look, I, uh, you, yeah, plain and simple, they're not doing enough at yeah. all. Um, the the priorities that our governments have uh, have are, are the polar opposite. You know, investing in more mining, um, for example. It, I just don't understand how. It's, it's 2021, you know, every other inverted commas, in, 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 what do you call them? Rabbit ears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Whatever they're called. Marks. <laughs> talking about quote, unquote, um, first, first world countries. Yeah. Um, you know, the majority of them have put in at least some effort to acknowledge their impact, to acknowledge the devastation that, you know, carbon dioxide and all of the, you know, coal mining and um, natural gas mining and all of these kinds of um, industries are having on our environment. They're at least acknowledging it and trying to commit to something. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's so disappointing as an Australian to look at your political leaders and know that their priorities are the polar opposite. Their priorities are money and the one percenters and, mining and uh you know it just it just seems so confusing it's as if they're not even looking at and I hate looking at this side of it because it doesn't mean anything to me but the economic side of things you know the amount of money the Great Barrier Reef brings in every year in tourism alone is ridiculous it's it's such a huge part of Australian tourism and yet they're willing to put it under threat for more coal mining mm. um, and it it just makes absolutely no sense to me. So I try not to get involved in politics because it just makes me really angry yeah, um, and obviously it's a, it's a, a difficult conversation to have um, yeah. because everyone has their own opinions and it can get quite fired up quite quickly. Um, but I think, yes, in terms of what the Australian government is doing, it's pitiful um, yeah. and they're... There are so many things that they can be doing. Um, I mean, even just um, revising the laws around, you know, habitat protection for for koalas, for example, like where you can where you can knock down trees and who yeah. has the say in that. That's a I mean, big deal in New South Wales right now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 ridiculous. So these companies just come through and just wipe out eco entire ecosystems. And I mean, I use the koala as an example because obviously it's it's not a keystone species, but in terms of like um, an ambassador, yeah, an amb- thank you, an ambassador species. It, it's a big one. Um, you know, you wipe out these these koalas, and you're not only wiping them out, you're wiping out millions of other species all all through the the the, um, the ecosystem. So. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. And in terms of conservation uphill battles, I feel like politics is probably one of the biggest ones. Yeah. Is it and I'm not sure like I, I don't I don't care if people are, are liberal or labor or greens or one nation. I don't care. As long as we can all agree that climate change is the biggest problem to ever face our species of humans. Mm. All good. But for the most part 
who's who do you think's doing this? Who's to blame? I'm sure most of the the two major parties, you know, have some aspect of blame to them, but who's responsible the most for this this shit stirring our environment? Is it the libs or the labors? Um, look, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, like I said, I, I don't get too invested in politics. I should, and it's something that I need to work on. Um, because, you know, I'm in my thirties, these people are, you know, affecting everything in my life. And I, it's something that I'm a little bit ashamed to, to, I guess, um, admit that, yeah, I don't, I don't actually pay enough attention to political action, um, on a, on a more day-to-day basis and things, I kind of hear the the big announcements um, and kind of focus on those when it comes to the environment. Um, I think that in terms of since I've been able to vote, so however many years that is, I'm not going to acknowledge that because that just makes me feel old. Um, I think that I have definitely seen, especially in the last four to eight years, I think environment has definitely taken a back seat with liberals yeah. in power. Um, but uh, historic and and historically from what I can remember and what I do know, um, Labor hasn't been quite as focused on things like mining, um, but I could be wrong. Well, so, what do you think about having scientists in politics? I think uh, it's surely, vital. Surely, and why hasn't it happened before? Or it, it might it might have happened. I just don't know <laughs> any of those people. But why not? I mean, people that go strictly by the book, facts, numbers, just get onto it. Yeah, I look. I agree. I think that I we have come to a point in our society where scientists are being questioned left, right, and centre. Mm. Um, are there scientists out there who uh, will? take the money and manipulate the data or the facts or, you know, publish only what works for certain parties. Yeah, absolutely, because there are, you know, people like that in every industry. But the vast majority of scientists are there because they want they, they want to improve the world. They want to improve our health, but they want to improve our planet. Um, and they, you know, this is their livelihood and this is this is their passion. So I think very much so we need to be having scientists involved much more directly in political decisions. And I think that's been a big issue here in Australia is that the scientists feel like they're screaming at, you know, at the political leaders that climate change is real, the evidence is irrefutable, mm. and, you know, the the deadline for reversing it or at least slowing it down to a point where our species and all species on earth aren't going to perish in the next, you know, hundred years is dangerously close. Um, and it just feels like no one's listening. No one's listening to them. Um, so yeah, I, I, especially as someone with a science background, someone who has a lot of friends in science, um, I, I definitely think we need more scientists directly involved in the political decisions of our country and all countries. Yeah. Do, do you think it's easier to enact a, ch- a change or a movement in a first world country or a third world country or a developing country? Like, the more the infrastructure, do you think it's easier or the less? <sighs> to be honest, I... I don't know if it's so much the first versus third world. I feel like it's more um, the type of political ruling they have, Uh, you know, like as in like if it's communism versus dictatorship versus um, uh, whatever whatever we have. (laughs) What do we have? (laughs) Uh, Is it democracy? Democracy. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that one. You know that one that we apparently have? Um, I feel like that obviously plays a huge part in uh, how quickly and efficiently laws get passed because if you're in a democracy like we are, um, or we apparently are, um, it's it's so much harder for laws to get passed because if, if the balance of power is, you know, like 49 to 50 or something like that, the the ability of, of politicians to push anything through just 
becomes a, a constant tug of war. Um, mm. And a lot of politicians have tried to get things through in the past and they spend their entire term trying to push it and convincing the other party and negotiating with them and nothing ends up happening. And, and nothing so they gets look, done. Yeah, and nothing gets done. And so yeah. by the end of their term, they look like they've accomplished absolutely nothing. <laughs> and it wasn't because they didn't yeah. try. It was because they're, they're yeah, being just, held back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas obviously if you have um, another type of political ruling where, uh, you know, the person in power is is the the one that makes the rules, Um then obviously it's much quicker to get the rules of power uh, through. Not not saying that those laws are necessarily going to be better or worse. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but in those terms, it's it's going to be quicker to get them through. Yeah, it's more so, efficient for sure. Yeah, so I think mm. every country has political issues. I don't think there's a single country in the world that can say that there isn't some issue within their political system that um, that they need to work on. And and I think that's just that's just part of being human and mm. and trying to live in a, a peaceful civilized world i guess is that there no matter how much we try to be civilized and discuss things we're not all going to agree on everything and that's fine um but it does mean that you know even something is what should be as simple as protecting an ecosystem mm. becomes incredibly difficult and and i think that's that's one of the biggest problems with environmental politics is that I think the experts aren't being listened to and people who have no actual knowledge or understanding of the way that ecosystems work, um, the importance of them, the fact that we literally are part of them. I think that's one of the biggest problems when it comes to environmental politics. The wrong people are controlling the rules. Yeah. Now, uh, I mentioned before if we should have more scientists in politics. Um, but what do you think about instead of scientists trying to learn about politics. Oh, no, 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 sorry. Instead of having politics trying to learn about science from scientists, what do you think about scientists learning about politics and then weaving themselves in and, and talking like a politician? Do mm -hmm. you think then they would listen? Or do you think just going by facts is too much for for politicians and they're like, nah, that's going to hurt my campaign or whatever. But if they talked bullshit like a politician, mm. do you think that would further our, our cause? Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's tricky because everyone has a role to play. And I think that scientists, their role is to communicate science and some do that incredibly well and some not so well. And I think the same with politicians. Some of them do it really well yeah, and some of them fair. don't do it really well. And I think that the problem with putting anyone into power is that everyone is going to have their own personal views. Everyone's going to have their own personal agendas. And uh, that is going to influence what what they prioritize in power and so for us as environmentalists and conservationists obviously yeah if scientists came in and they were all we're going to take immediate action to reduce climate change we're going to put in all these steps to protect ecosystems endangered species obviously we would be like yes let's vote for them and that's mm. great but it doesn't then necessarily prioritize other community issues like education and the health system um so I think that as much as scientists definitely need to be in the room, it's very difficult to say whether they should hold, I guess, a, like, you know, a big amount of power. Um, I think it's not going to hurt them to understand politics. I think it's definitely going to help them if they're trying to make a case, if they're trying to convince politicians. I think speaking politician language is definitely going to help them. Um, mm. Do I think it's going to make the politicians listen to their environmental stuff and change their minds? I really don't know. I think that, again, I think that comes down to the individual politician and where their priorities lie um, and, and how, you know, what their, what their focuses are. If their focus is on, you know, just getting to the end of their term and, and getting that money in their pocket, then no, they couldn't care less. Um, if yeah. their, if their goal is to actually make a genuine difference to society, um, and they believe that the environment is one of 
those ways, then yeah, absolutely. But I think it's, it's, it's just too individual. And I think that's what makes it so difficult. Yeah. Um, I was having this on the topic of scientific communication. I was having this debate with my best friend who's a nuclear physicist. And we both disagree uh, with each other. (laughs) I say that it is the, like coming from a scientific communicator as my job, I say it's our responsibility to always teach information as simply as it can be for a general audience. And I think we were talking about the anti-vaxxer movement or or something like that. Um, I said, if scientists from early on, as soon as vaccines were created, communicated in layman's terms the effectiveness of vaccines and why it's the best thing ever, we wouldn't have this problem today. He goes, nah, that shit. We should have the information ready and whoever's smart enough reads it. And then if they don't understand it, bad luck. What's your perspective on that? Oh, that's just mean. Why would you put me in that position? (laughs) (laughs) If your best friend listens to your podcast, he's going to be like, pick me, pick me. I I better get him on soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, man, I don't know. I I think that... yeah, I don't even know. You're going to have to edit this because I have no it's, idea how to answer no, no, that question. <laughs> it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. <laughs> Look, I think that there is definitely a way to communicate with the general public because not everyone is going to have a science degree and not everyone is going to understand scientific terminology. Um, I work in a vet clinic and I am studying to be a wildlife vet nurse, so I'm learning a lot of veterinary medical terminology and I have to be careful when I'm talking to clients about their pets what terminology I use, not because I think they're stupid but because they're not, they, they may not have learnt that terminology so they're not going to understand what I'm talking about so if I say is your dog lethargic they may have no idea what the word lethargic even means so they're gonna be like um yes and then the dog walks in and it's super happy you know like um so I, I don't think it's necessarily dumbing it down um to speak in more communal language that everybody understands um so long as the facts are still given honestly um I think that expecting everyone to understand at the same level is unrealistic. It's leaving a lot of people out. And I think some of the biggest issues in terms of healthcare, education, welfare, any any issue we have in society is that unfortunately a lot of the time it's the first first class and or the upper class and the middle class people who benefit because they have had access to education and medical care and they are you know they do have four walls around them and they they do have a stable job and, and this is this is obviously a generalization um whereas you know people who unfortunately have not had that in their life they they're not going to have the same kind of ease of access and understanding. So I think it, you, do, you have to pick your audiences, but I think the information should be available to everyone. And I think that's where it comes down to the professionals to ensure that the way the information is communicated, as long as it is still honest and it is still true, is given in a way that everyone can understand so that everyone has an opportunity to make an informed decision. I love it. You say you didn't have a perspective, but that was perfect. And, uh, I agree. Take that, Stefan, you dick. Um, no, nah, we're all good. <laughs> um, oh, I've got so many other questions. Um, Australia has kind of copped it in the past two, three years-ish now. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and so is everyone else. But we're also coming off uh, on the end of black summer bushfires, mm droughts, floods. How do we mend this? How, I know it's such a simple <laughs> The million question dollar question. <laughs> so many answers, but what can everyday Aussies do to to sort of combat climate change? And because we combat climate change, we knock all these things off the board, mm. at least, or at least we, we minimize the occurrence of it. So, yeah, what do you say to the everyday Aussie listener to to try and mend our beautiful country? 
Um, my first piece of advice is don't take on the weight of it by yourself because your impact alone is going to be tiny compared to the impact of uh, a mining company or, you know, some big industrial organization. So first of all, don't take the weight of it on to yourself alone. This is going to take everybody around the world. Um, as an individual, I feel like there's a really beautiful movement at the moment in the climate change world to not shift away so much from how you can change your individual um, lifestyle and, and things that you're doing in your everyday life, but to ensure that you're not putting all that pressure just on the individual and that we're now moving towards realising that the pressure needs to be much more on your politicians, your major corporations and industries and the big polluters. Um, and so there's a big, beautiful movement at the moment in climate change awareness to um, to really look at the, the companies that you're investing in. So your bank, for example, um, this is something that I've only learned in the last few years. I mean, to me, a bank was just someone that held your money. <laughs> You know, I, I got my, my Combank account when I was a kid and, um, and that was, that was it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until, you know, I started really learning more about climate change and, and, you know, the, the big polluters that I realized and I learned that, I mean, banks are investment companies. They invest in things. They use your money to invest in things. And of the major banks, a lot of them invest in really bad or bad is probably the wrong word, but really, environmentally unfriendly systems um, like right. mining. So, um, you know, contacting your bank or at least just doing your research and seeing what they invest in um, and who they partner with, contacting them and saying, you know, I've been with you for 20, 30 years. I'm looking to move because I'm not happy with who you're investing my money in. Would you consider changing it? And if they're not willing to change, then go and find another bank. Same with your superannuation. As far as I know, the big fours do, um, but there are some other ones that aren't quite as big who also do. Who are the good banks? Um, I believe Bank Australia is meant to be really good and Bendigo okay. Bank is meant to be really good. Don't quote me on those. Make sure you do your own research, obviously. Um, but they're two of the ones that I, I remember looking at. Um, uh, so, yeah, so things like your your bank, your superannuation, um, your uh, anything that you have money invested in really um, yeah. because at the end of the day, they they have to invest somewhere and, you know, they basically are there for you're investing in whatever they're investing in. Um, and so if we can all put the pressure on them to stop investing in non-renewable energy and environmentally damaging um, industries and shift mm. towards green energy and renewable sources, that's going to make such a big impact on yeah. on climate change and and the impact on our climate um and then in your everyday life i mean if you're if you live close to to the shops um you know walk or ride your bike instead of driving um the less you know the less time you can the less you can use your car the better because every time you turn your car on it starts emitting you know toxic gases mm. um uh trying not to waste as much food because food waste um, goes into landfill or to composting and actually um, emits a lot of polluting greenhouse gases. Um, so kind of trying to reduce that as well is actually a really big one. Being really conscious of uh, your spending in things like clothing because mm. not only are the materials going to impact the planet directly but also the manufacturing of those materials so, you know, there's so many clothes out there in secondhand shops and op shops and you can do clothes swaps with your friends. The less the less we can buy new, then the less, you know, emissions we're going to have. So there's there are so many ways, but it's it's just a matter of, I guess, yeah, kind of trying to balance your individual acts and putting pressure on the big ones as well because they they're the ones that need to change. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, that was awesome. Um, <laughs> I was looking at, <laughs> I was looking at End, uh, Extinction International oh, last week, maybe the week before. Um, um, oh, I'm picking, oh, up, I'm a picking up a bit of echo. Yeah, sorry, I accidentally just unplugged my headphones. Give me a second. 
Oh, all good, all good. All right. Sorry. Tell me when you Is can. that better? No, it's all good. <laughs> test, test. Sorry, I was trying yeah, to I was trying right. to lift, pull up my sleeve, but because of my broken arm, it's all really awkward and I got tangled. <laughs> all good, all good. Um I was looking at End Extinction International and you guys sort of promote so many really cool campaigns. Um Tickling is torture. There was Save the Vaquita. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. 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 Um, how do you choose these campaigns? Um, I don't really choose. If it's an endangered species or an endangered ecosystem that needs, that you know, that needs highlighting, then I'm going to share it because I started EEI in the hopes of raising awareness for all endangered species, not just the cute fluffy ones that everybody loves. Um, I, I really want to, to highlight the ones that no one had ever heard of because a lot of the time mm. they're the ones that are on the brink, like the vaquita that, you know, they've, when I started EEI, they estimated there was about 30 left. We're now down to less than 10. Um, mm, and geez. that's 10, 10 individuals yeah, left. Yeah. I, I think it's maximum of 10 now. Um, oh and the chances of us, saving this species unfortunately are devastatingly low because the number of individuals is so low it's not completely hopeless but obviously the lower the number gets the the less the chance of saving them but the biggest problem is that the reason they're endangered is um they are caught as bycatch um in these awful gill nets um, and until the governments involved and the industries involved in using these nets uh, stop, there, there's no hope um, of, of saving them because that is their threat. That is their, their threat and the reason that their number has dropped so much. Um, and unfortunately, regardless of what your views are on captivity, um, they have tried to take some of the individuals, put them in captivity for breeding purposes to try and get their numbers back up, and those individuals did not do well. So they know that they do not cope in captivity, which is uh, yeah. obviously a very um, it's a very hot topic, um, even in the zoo industry and the conservation industry, yeah, as to be. with cetaceans yeah. um, in captivity. I personally don't like cetaceans being in captivity. I don't feel that we can give them the space and the enrichment and the natural, um, the the natural living that they they require. Mm. Um, just just for everyone listening, cetaceans are whales and porpoises. That's just a scientific. Sorry, word. yeah. See, uh, there we go. No, no, no. Here I am talking about no, scientific right. scientists using the layman's <laughs> terms, and I'm like, ah, cetaceans. <laughs> so, yes. No, just wanted to squeeze that in. Sorry, there. thank you. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but but obviously there are. Um, I know like SeaWorld um, up on the Gold Coast, they do a lot of rescues which and they and they have done a lot of conservation work, which is amazing. Um, but, yeah, but the vaquita just hasn't done well in captivity and it's not doing well in the wild. So, unfortunately, that's one species that we could potentially see the extinction of in the next decade, which is... Is, is it from South America? Is it's Mexico. It, it's off the Gulf of Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so they're one, I think they're the world's smallest porpoise. I believe, or smallest dolphin. Yeah, I read that. Um, yeah, but but yeah, so so it's species like that that no one had ever heard of until you know the last ten years when the numbers got so low. Um, and for me, especially, I love the non cuddlies and furries when it comes to conservation because they're the ones that need the most help in terms of just getting their names out there, getting people knowing about them, getting the initial fear of them so reptiles especially snakes there are tons of endangered yeah. snakes out there but until we can get people over their fear of them and actually respecting them as a living feeling sentient being the chances of us being able to to, to you know put together community focused conservation efforts is is you know going to be very small um same with amphibians amphibians so your frogs toads um salamanders they um as a animal group they are the most endangered group in the world um it's like 40 percent of amphibians are um, currently facing extinction which is horrific um but unfortunately the majority of money seems to be focused on um mammals um which is not a bad thing obviously there are a lot of endangered mammals but i think we just need to really make sure that we help all the other ones as well because as an ecosystem yeah. mammals are just one part of an ecosystem um and so that's yeah, that's that's when I look at EEI, I I try to ensure that 
all species, regardless of their classification, get highlighted, get their um, get their fifteen seconds of fame or whatever. Um, yeah, because they're all important. So, so how's EEI uh, attempting to save the vaquita or helping out the vaquita? I should say EEI is not a registered organisation at this point. I have been trying to set it up as a registered organisation for quite a few years, but it's actually really difficult to do especially when you're by yourself um i didn't even think about it i'm sure it is yeah um and so i i started eei in 2013 and i run it by myself there's no there's no team it's just me um and obviously i you know have had things happen in my life that have meant that i haven't been able to put as much energy and focus into eei and um so i definitely kind of um it's very much an up and down journey with eei um so the most important thing for me is that EEI continues to be a source of education and information and inspiration for people around the world and offers daily or day-to-day things that the general public can do to help protect them. So when I started EEI, I was doing endangered species profiles only. Um, and I would create a profile on an endangered species that taught people their name, where they're from, how many are estimated to be left, a couple of fun facts about them, the major threats to them and what people can do to save them. Um, and obviously then I started other other organisations, you know, started growing or were, you know, using social media and they had campaigns and things like that. So then, of course, I'm going to promote them because to me the most important thing for conservation, which I think is probably one of the biggest things lacking in conservation, is collaboration um, and working together. And I don't see the point of having six separate organisations working to save the same species and having to compete for the limited resources that conservation has, if we could just pull them all together. And if you've got one organisation whose strength is community involvement and you've got another one whose strength is fundraising and you've got another one who is working on the ground, you know, doing, um, you know, uh, field um, research, um, you know, tagging and monitoring and, and artificial breeding and things like that, if you can bring them all together under one umbrella to save that particular species, I believe that the, the chances of success are just so much higher. Um, so for me, that's one of the other reasons I haven't kind of registered EEI is because I don't want to just be another orc that people kind of have to put on their list of to donate or not to donate. I wanted to wait until mm. I could figure out what the gap in conservation was and fill that gap um, so that all conservation efforts have a high chance of success. I love it. I love it. Thank you for teaching me about the vaquita. Um, honestly, I did not know what it was <laughs> until I went on EEI. Um, guys and girls listening, if you don't know what it is, have a look, okay? It's a very, very cute animal uh, that needs help, okay? Um, right before we end it, because we are almost done, um, have you had any close encounters in the wild? I know you've got a broken arm right now, but that's not from, <laughs> from, a that's not from wildlife. That's from a, a rogue soccer ball. Um, have you had any yeah, near misses or anything like that? Um, not really. No, I have been bitten <laughs> by quite a few animals. It was kind of an embarrassing joke at, uh, when I worked at Betterdale because, um, I was the vegan hippie, you know, animal, <laughs> like let's save all of the animals person. And I always was the one to get bitten and it was just ridiculous and it was so embarrassing and it made me question every all my life choices um so in the wild um i haven't had a huge amount of field experience but i'm sure i probably will get bitten in the in the in the the field just because it's me um i will do everything i can to not get bitten um but uh, as a zookeeper, I got bitten. I had a baby penguin latch onto my top lip during a photo shoot for a newspaper and I was doing the exact mm. same pose that other keepers had done. None of them had got bitten and I did the exact same pose and the baby penguin just turned around and grabbed my lip. Um, I got bitten by a... Penguins hurt. It was only a baby. It was penguins a little baby, hurt. little penguin. And it, yeah, left a... Oh, a little... Yeah, like a little penguin. Um, and it left a nice big mark on my... Uh, a big scratch on my lip for quite a while. Um, I got bitten by a koala... That was probably that was I think that was the first animal, wild animal well you know wild animal that I got bitten by and I do not recommend it it really hurts it was yeah. on my shoulder so I couldn't actually lift my arm properly for like a week um, I got bitten by a bilby and had to go on antibiotics that was fun um, 
Don't don't get bitten by a bill. Never heard of a bilby vine. They have razor sharp little teeth. <laughs> it's really <Yeah>. painful because <laughs> um, they're insectivores. So obviously they need to like crunch through exoskeletons and stuff. So of course. Um, I've been bitten by uh, two pythons. Um, both of them were olive pythons, and both of them um, were coming out of winter feeding, and I wasn't aware. And so I put my hand in as I normally did to get them for my education talk. They were they were very well handled and usually were fine. Um, and they both went, "No, I'm really hungry," and decided that I would be their food um so yeah so in terms of in terms of being bitten it's not something I'm proud of um I also uh did get ejaculated on by a koala once oh fun I've never heard of that well now you have um so yep it was Uh, just in the mood or he, it was it was his first season, uh, and I uh, was just walking him down to the education centre. He was my favourite koala before that happened. Maybe not so of much course. after. Um, he was just this beautiful, beautiful little boy. He just had the cutest, most perfect little face, and he was really sweet. He loved nose rubs and little chest head, uh, rubs, and he was just he was just a lovely koala. And I was walking past an all girl enclosure, and he kind of grunted and wiggled, and I thought he was turning to bite and I was like no you don't bite what are you doing and then he settled really quickly and I was like oh okay he just had to get something out of his system and turned out to be that um so yeah so I had some nice big stains on my shirt for the rest of the day which I had to explain away as toothpaste is it I was gonna ask is it the same color as as I had to explain it as toothpaste let's just leave it as that okay okay Uh, yeah, so that's that's probably the extent of my uh, embarrassing experiences at this stage. But stay tuned because I'm sure there will be more. Yeah, what what's going to happen next? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm training to be a wildlife vet nurse, so who knows where this is going to yeah, lead. Yeah, right. <laughs> a lot of blood and guts there, I'm sure. Uh, thank you so much, Tani, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, for anyone listening, follow her on her Instagram at End Extinction International. And also just Tani Barnes. That's on uh, Instagram as well. Anything else am I forgetting? No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you so much for listening to my ramblings. I did warn you that I ramble. Um, That's great. So so thank you. And I will just clarify once again, I have zero experience in politics. So please don't take anything (laughs) I say as gospel. (laughs) No, of course. It's it's great to hear your perspective uh, as a scientist. So yeah, thank you for that. No, thank you. It was fun. I really appreciate it. Take it easy, guys.